0: with the second hour. wanted to uh, just read a passage of Scripture and use it to uh, pray for us as we uh, continue on this journey. Uh, John 14, 27. Uh, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Uh, neither let them be afraid. Lord, we come to you. Lord, we just admit we struggle Lord we have we talk about this subject and our hearts are unsettled and we, we need your peace Lord we need a peace that is more than the world is able to give um, and so Lord we come to you now asking you for that uh, asking that you would use our time together to bring hope and healing and restoration uh, Lord we love you and we are learning to trust you in your name we pray, amen. So the search for peace, and as we talk about peace here, would just create maybe a larger word family for us to think about this concept of peace, the kinds of things that are related to peace that we would be looking for, trying to obtain in this section. Things like hope, just a sense that that as we talked about a moment ago, that my my expectations that things could be better could begin to elevate, and I would be okay with that. Trust. Uh, The sense that I could begin to put some weight on a relationship. That I could have some sense of expectancy. uh, Some sense of hearing somebody make a commitment and not questioning that. To be able to relax, to be able to engage in an activity, and just to let myself go, to be fully in that moment, not to be on guard about what it is that I need to be paying attention to, that, I, that I'm just afraid I'm missing and it's going to hurt me, to feel safe. Um, again, not to be on guard, clarity. To be able to think, and my, my mind is not asking a dozen different questions all of the time, that things could be quiet and still. That's the, the kind of experience that we are trying to learn. How, how do I get there when things have been as disrupted as everything that we talked about in our first hour together? And I think one of the things that has to be there is is that we're going to have to be honest. We're not going to get there by minimizing what happened. And that's where Dan Allender gets us started. He says, true hope never minimizes a problem in order to make it more palatable and easily managed. Whatever we mean by safe, it's not going to come from denial. It's not going to come from ignoring It's not going to come from forgetting. Wherever we find safe, there's going to have to be an honest safety. He says, when we fail to trust the real God, uh, we do not escape trusting someone or something. Uh, Trust like breathing, and indeed like worship, is inevitable. Sometimes when... When people have been abused, whether it be sexual abuse or other forms, they just say, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anything. And I think they're, they're very sincere in their saying that. But I think they miss something. Uh, there is one thing that they do trust. They trust their fears. The one thing that they expect never to lie to them, never to be false is their fears. And and part of what we're after, part of where I hope that this presentation allows us to begin to make some steps in that direction, is that we could begin to doubt our fears. That when something is running through our mind, what if? That, That what if did not seem automatically true in that moment. Because our Our definition of peace, uh, our definition of safety, it has to include some element of trust or it's just going to degenerate into control. Uh, if, If our definition of safety, if our definition of peace means it has no trust in it whatsoever, then the only alternative that that leaves is me trying to control all of the situations and all of the people around me. And so if our definition of peace and safety doesn't involve some element of trust, it would degenerate into control. David Pallison, he says, Abuse feels like an experience that has stamped you, uh, that has the final word on your identity. But the truth is, God gives you a different identity. Now, if you've been in the church for very long, chances are uh, you've heard a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.17. Uh, that we are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new is gone. But yet we would say, yeah, I may be a new creation, but I've still got a history. And I've still got memories. And I don't know what to do with that. He says, the abuse you suffered is part of the stage upon which your life choices now take place. Uh, You are marked by suffering, but that suffering has become the context for knowing God. Now, as he talks there about stage and and context, um, I think one of the ways, just to kind of give us a visual for that, uh, is imagine you're at one of those really oversized malls. Uh, where it's dizzyingly large with all these different corridors and uh, they have to have this ostentatious sign so that you can find anything that you would be looking for. And you come up on that sign and you're desperately looking for the X that says, you are here. Uh, I think part of what we realize is that our journey begins where we are. And too often, I think in in Christian circles or even outside of that there is such an emphasis on where we ought to be and it just assumes we know and understand where we are but in order for a map to be of any benefit at all you have to know two points on that map where you want to be and where you are uh, and, and what we're wanting to do here, I think part of what David Pallison is alluding to, when he says part of our suffering is the stage, is the context, it's, it's where we are. And our journey begins from here. Uh, as we go on that journey, uh, one of the things that, uh, that will begin to happen as we're honest is that we will feel. And part of the reason that I think if we're honest, the reason we're not honest is because we don't want to feel. Whenever we acknowledge what happened, there is an assortment of emotions that we just want to shrink back from. And I think one of those is grief. Uh, Diane Lingberg again. She says a great many coping mechanisms uh, are destructive. Uh, the cycle is very similar to the abuse cycle. Well, I'm talking here about substance abuse or addiction. You feel it hurts you find some way to disconnect. Now, as we talk about this, uh, I I want you to hear me speak patiently and compassionately. uh, Because she talks here about coping mechanisms being destructive. Well, chances are at the point where we began to use them, they were the best thing available. They were all we had. Again, we talk about what does abuse do? It limits our good choices. It multiplies our bad choices. But best available does not mean long-term healthy. And so as we talk about, pretty much for the rest of this seminar, some of the unhealthy coping mechanisms that are there, I would invite you to think about them almost like you would think about that bad friend you hope your kid doesn't get in middle school. That, uh, that bad friend who is a bad influence, and as they do things together and they get in trouble... And they just begin to stick together. And it begins to feel like we're the only two uh, who really get one another. We're the only two that aren't going to scold each other. We're, we're thick as thieves. Um, it, that's the kind of friend that these destructive coping mechanisms can become. And we feel attached to them. We feel loyal to them. They were there for me when nothing else was when nothing else could make it better, when nothing else could give me relief, when nobody else seemed to understand, this was there. Again, whether it be substance abuse, cutting, not trusting, it was there for me. It was that kind of friend. And for the moment, I would just invite you to be open to the consideration that that, that may be the kind of friend that is the bad middle school friend we hope our kids don't have. Now, uh, Diane goes on to say, a large part of helping a client understand what it means to be a victim is educating the client about what it means to be a child. Um, And one of the pieces of advice that she gives there is to go to the playground where children are playing Uh, that are the same age that you were when you were abused and just watch them and see how they interact see what they know see what they're capable of chances are you'll come away saying they're so little they're so innocent You'll see one of them fall down and get hurt and they run to their parent or other adult and they expect to be comforted. And touch is this affirming thing that, that brings a sense of presence and they feel safe about that. And, and one of the things that I would hope you would be able to pull away is they shouldn't know how to handle what I went through. At that age. Because oftentimes what happens to us. Is again we are trying to understand this for all of our life. And, And as we get older we think through it with that adult perspective. And we think whatever I know now I should have known then. I should have been able to do. And we miss the innocence. Of what it would mean to be a child. And I think as we reflect on it in a room like this one of the things that we would realize pretty quickly you can't start being an adult at eight years old but yet adult things can be forced into your world to where you feel like you have to begin to deal with them but even when that occurs you're still a child and until we see that as good then we begin to view innocence as if it is unsafe and all of the kinds of things that innocence allows us things like trust instead of being a blessing instead of being a part of a close relationship it just feels like a setup and so we resist it and we we long to be close we want that kind of innocence but yet we're scared of it and until we grieve it It's hard for us to view it as good. But when we allow ourselves to grieve that lost childhood, that lost innocence, then the event can be bad, Um, but the innocence that it took from us can be good. And so what are some of the things uh, that we would grieve? We've talked about the loss of innocence. might also be the the loss of virginity. Uh, The loss of relationships. Either because I had to live fake, or maybe we had to move because whoever the abuser was knew they were going to get caught and they took us away and I lost all of my friends because of this. The loss of a sense of safety, uh, the loss of a healthy normal. Those are all things that are right and appropriate to grieve. Now I would also say there are certain things that, that we don't have to grieve. We don't have to grieve the loss of life you're here. You don't have to grieve the loss of personhood. Again, the kinds of choices that you make to be here, the kinds of choices that you make to be a part of a church and community, it it shows that that so much good is going on. The ability to love. One of the things that, that blows me away in having these conversations is how Deeply and compassionately, those who have been abused can love and care for another person when so much that should have just destroyed that ability happened. And the level of character, the level of grace of God in their life, it is, I would say, nothing short of heroic. Um, Now, as we grieve, I think there's a couple of enemies Uh, That we, as we pursue peace in this way, that that are going to be things that we have to to overcome and to avoid. And one of those enemies is shame. Um, Now, I would say shame is unlike most other emotions. Because most other emotions, when I put them into words, there's this moment of relief. If I say to you, I'm afraid somehow in that moment of disclosing to you that I'm afraid it helps lift that sense of fear if I say to you I feel lonely there's something about saying that that lifts that but shame it's different when I say to you I feel dirty My eyes immediately want to hit the ground and I don't want to look at you and I feel this intense heat and blushing come over me and I think this was dumb. I should have never said this out loud. Um, And I think that's part of what Dan Allender is alluding to when he says shame is an experience of the eyes. And if you've known Dan Allender or seen him speak on video, uh, you know he's got some idiosyncrasies that are just kind of uh, quirky Dan. Um, great guy. Uh, and he gives the example, though. He says, you know, if if I'm picking my nose in the privacy of my own home with nobody there, uh, I don't feel awkward about that at all. Uh, if I do that and other people catch me, all of a sudden, I feel shame. And at this moment, none of us want to go to our nose at all. Um, but he says, shame is an experience of the eyes. And then he starts to differentiate some pieces. He says, legitimate shame exposes depravity. It exposes something that's wrong. If we have company over to our house and our kids are being kind of normal kids and they spill their drink and I overreact, I feel what he would call legitimate shame. There was something I did wrong and and that emotion shows that that's been revealed. Uh, Illegitimate shame shines light on some element of dignity. Like the nakedness of a child's body. Now, uh, for purposes of language here, uh, I'll use slightly different language than Dan Allender uses. This isn't Webster's dictionary kind of language. I just I found for many people it's helpful for them to be able to uh, to separate some experiences if we if we use this kind of language. If what he calls legitimate shame, if we call that guilt, guilt is what we feel when we sin, what he calls illegitimate shame let's just call that shame shame is what I feel when I have been sinned against and so even as we think about how God relates to these experience God offers forgiveness for sin he forgives my guilt God doesn't forgive me for shame. He doesn't forgive me for sin committed against me. He doesn't forgive me for suffering because that's not what's needed. His grace takes a different form. It's compassion. It's healing. But because guilt and shame feel so much alike, there's this sense of blushing, the sense of not wanting anybody to know, this wanting to hide. We often, we often confuse the two experiences. He goes on to say, A godly response in the face of abuse is to grieve for the perpetrator's sin and the damage done to our own soul. But the natural response is to cower in shame, condemning our own soul for being so foolish as to hope to want or risk. When we talk about shame, I would say shame assumes three things. Shame assumes responsibility. Shame assumes there's something that I should have done. There's something that I could have done. Shame assumes control. Uh, And shame assumes this bracing against condemnation. That if anybody knew they would dislike me, they would view me as damaged goods. And I would say those kinds of assumptions become the kinds of themes around which those who have been abused often build their life. This sense of taking responsibility for everything that goes on around me. Of having to control in order for things to be safe. And forever bracing against this sense of condemnation. I would say that is the fruit of shame. That as we understand the difference between guilt and shame that we can begin, hopefully, to let go of that as we see that is not something that God holds us responsible for. He goes on to say, shame intensifies the horror of the past. Shame is compounded by personal confusion. Again, the confusion that we feel in the midst of our shame, it creates this sense of of ignorance, of hopelessness, of, Powerlessness, of helplessness. And we get to this point where we say, I've never tried so hard in anything for it to be better and failed so bad. And I think it's oftentimes because we're confusing guilt and shame. Now, another enemy uh, is the enemy of contempt Uh, the way that we use anger in and around the experience of abuse. Uh, to to try to make things better. Uh, In the selections that I have here from Dan Allender, I think he gives us five ways uh, that we destructively use contempt and anger after the experience of abuse. He says, Contempt uses rage, sometimes loud and violent, other times quiet and insidious, as a means for chasing away the uncertainty of shame. It's easier to hate than it is to hurt. Even if what I hate is me, it just gives me somewhere to channel this and point it and to give the response that this abuse needs. So even if I don't know where to point the anger, I just use the anger and channel it on something because it's easier to hate than it is to hurt. A second bad use. He says, for the woman or man who has been abused, one of the greatest enemies of the soul is the longing for intimacy, for closeness, for relationship. Contempt is a cruel anesthetic to longing. Can I want to be close? Oh, but I don't want to be hurt. And so I use anger. I use this kind of inner sense of just unrest to to push away any closeness of relationship. And that's where oftentimes this all or nothing kind of trust dynamic comes in where I just push away for so long until my soul just becomes dry and hungry and thirsty for relationship. And then because I'm in such a desperate spot, I give all of my trust and I microwave this relationship faster than it should go so that even if it had the opportunity to be a healthy relationship, it just develops in a way that's unhealthy and I get hurt and I go, see, that shouldn't happen, I can't trust. It's that aspect of contempt and and anger that's very understandable but begins to become this unhealthy friend. Uh, He goes on. The image of being without talent, mediocre, average, or worse, is self-serving, self-protective, an evaluation used for a purpose. It provides the victim with a contemptuous explanation for not being able to be able to halt the pain. Again, I can just beat myself up. I'm not blank enough to stop the pain. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. This is, this is why the pain won't stop. This is why I'm alone. Fourth, the image of being vile explains not only why the abuser betrayed the victim in the first place, but also gives reason for the absence of a deep relationship today. Again, I just use what happened to me. I am such a nasty person. That's why they chose me. That's why they did this to me. And this is why I'm alone now. And just that sense of contempt I use to explain loneliness. Or fifth, self-contempt is Satan's counterfeit for true conviction. So again, because I confuse guilt and shame, I don't just hate my sin whenever I do sin, I also hate myself as a sufferer. And I think that's how God views me. And I get very desperate and I'm crying out to God. I'm like, God, I don't know how to be any sorrier. I don't know how to go any lower. What more do you want from me? How else can I say I'm sorry, I'm vile, I'm dirty? And because we think what we need is God's forgiveness because our shame feels so much like our guilt. But when what He offers us is His compassion, His healing, His presence. Now when we talk about these kinds of enemies and we talk about all of this, a a tempting alternative would be could I just not feel? Can't painless, can't that be the same thing as peace? Peace. And based on what we've already said, and I would trust your own experience. I think you realize, no, it, it wouldn't be. Uh, Dan Allender. He says when we abandon pain, he uses the imagery of leprosy. We lose a sense of being intact and alive. Uh, leprosy. If you, uh, I think it's a, a fair picture of kind of what happens when we try to shut off. Uh, all emotion related to abuse, uh, Leprosy was a neural or is a neurological condition we 're beginning at the extremities. Uh, the nerve endings die, so we just can 't feel. And initially it 's got to be pretty cool. I can be working on something, I smash my finger with a hammer and it doesn 't hurt. it 's kind of nice i 'd rather not hurt. Well, what we realize is that when we lose the ability to feel, we lose the ability to care for ourselves. And so what begins to happen with leprosy is that the leper sustains an injury. And when it gets infected, they can't tell. They don't feel. And so literally they begin to rot uh, because they're unable to care for their own body because of the loss of feeling. And when we try to just shut off all emotion, then we lose the ability to care for ourselves uh, in healthy ways. He goes on to say, Many times the chronic pattern of lying or deceit common to abused persons arise because of a forsaken history that forces them to concoct a past and a present that has no connection uh, to their abused soul. And I would say that makes sense. Again, think about being a kid. How was your weekend? I've got to say something. I don't want to say I was raped three times. If I even know what the word rape is to talk about what happened. So I have to make up a story. And I'm doing that not only to protect myself, I'm doing that to protect you. And so I just, again, I have the lies told to me at home. I have the sense of shame. I can't talk about this with other people. And so I just begin to live in a lie. And I begin to believe at some point I'm going to be able to create a lie good enough. A world that's safe for me to live in. But it just keeps detaching me from real people. Because the real people don't know about the real events, So they can't really care for the real me. And so when even when people care for me, I think, you don't really know me. If you knew what happened to me, I don't know what you would think of me. Would you shrink back in disgust? I don't know. Yet, he says, to cut off the past is to erase part of our story, our journey, our self. In the beginning, honesty, Facing the characteristic lies and denial associated with sexual abuse usually intensifies the experience of victimization. It's kind of like coming out of a movie theater, this place that's really dark, and you step out into a bright noon day, and initially that hurts, we wince, we want to go back in. And again, I would just say, is, oftentimes as we begin to talk about these kinds of things, that is our experience, we go, this isn't helping, it's hurting. Uh, Diane Lingberg. if it's not avoiding pain, sometimes we use pain. She says many survivors talk about self-injury in order to feel alive uh, or as a major jolt to the body uh, that results in quieting, raging anxiety or fear. A dissociative state ensues so that the injury initially seems to produce no pain, almost as if an anesthesia has been given. I think there's two explanations there. One is what we already talked about, uh, the release of endorphins that happens at that moment uh, of self-injury. But another aspect that can begin to happen uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be self-injury, that when we think about this dissociative state, where we just kind of step back, where mentally we depart from what's going on. Uh, In the moment of abuse, if this is kind of the threshold at which dissociation occurs, Uh, abuse would just push us up there and then we would kind of get to escape for a little while. But then we go through the other parts of life. We get out of the abusive environment and we still have stressors and things still go wrong. But they won't quite go wrong enough to get us to that point of relief. We don't know how to get down. We just... And so we... Maybe we stoke the argument to go higher and higher until so we can get to that point of relief. Or we find some other way to make the situation seem more, more unsafe, more stressful so that we can break that threshold and actually get relief. And we hate ourselves for doing it. And we don't understand it and we think we're crazy. But somehow if we can just get to that point of upset, that level of unrest, we know it will feel better. I think it's another one of those ways of those coping mechanisms being an unhealthy friend that continues to cause damage around us but then we feel like it's all we've got. And so, if you ask me how do we, how should we approach pain? What is a proper response? Just a few quick pointers there. Acknowledge what happened as evil without excuse. There is no reason for sexual abuse. Um, In in the midst of making excuses, we somehow try to make it okay, and it's not. Uh, Accept the reality without taking responsibility. Again, one of the reasons that we are so prone to try to take responsibility is because it gives us control. If there's something I should have or could have done then there's something I can do now that would make sure this didn't happen again. And so as much as it beats us up, we want responsibility in order to have a sense of control. Uh, Understand the lies that come with pain without believing them. Again, I hope that's part of the benefit of this kind of seminar. It's just where we can... We can hear those lies spoken out loud in a room full of people and we recognize nobody believes that. But me in my own thoughts when there's nobody else there I believe that. And I need to be able to understand. I need to be able to articulate the lies without believing them, without embracing them. And then that continual theme that we'll hit begin to create a real safe world built on truth. Truth. Now hopefully what we've talked about to this point uh, can can help you understand why I would say sexual abuse often results in post-traumatic stress. And and usually when we think of post-traumatic stress, we just think of military veterans who have been uh, at war and then they come back and they've experienced post-traumatic stress. Uh, That is one uh, cause of post-traumatic stress. It's far from the only. So to help us bridge into this, I'll just offer us Uh, A definition of trauma. What is trauma? Uh, trauma? Trauma is facing something more than we're prepared to deal with at the time that we're asked to go through it. So if I'm 26 years old, and I'm driving with somebody, and they're upset with me, and they get out of the car, and they walk off, 26 years old, I've got a driver's license. I think they're being stupid. I may be upset with them. I get in the car, I drive. If I'm six years old and my parent is driving along and they get up so upset that they just get out of the car and leave me and my siblings in the car, that is more than I'm prepared to deal with at the time that I'm asked to go through it. And another part of trauma is that it decreases our resiliency for future traumas that threshold at which something becomes traumatic goes down uh, because there are more associations and triggers that goes along with it now uh, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress tend to cluster around uh, three areas Uh, there are those uh, symptoms of re-experiencing nightmares flashbacks Uh, There are the uh, patterns or symptoms of avoidance, Uh, denial, uh, forgetting, uh, the loss of pleasure, and the symptoms of hyperarousal, not meaning arousal like sensual, but just on guard, alert. Um, uh, Dan Allender, he he helps us see some of this. He talks about hypervigilance. He says, life is centered on taking in as much information as possible. The goal is never to be surprised again. Again, when, when you face trauma, it almost always comes out of the blue. Almost by definition, it's unpredictable. So I begin to realize the game of life is all about predicting the unpredictable. Whatever I'm paying attention to is something that the danger is going to come from somewhere else. And so I have to be paying attention to what I'm not paying attention to. And I just, I am so on guard, so waiting for the other shoe to drop because it just feels like that's what you have to do in order to be safe. Uh, I'll draw a parallel here admitting it's uncomfortable. Uh, But I think it's an important just aspect in terms of our culture to think about. If 40% of people will face sexual abuse before the age of 18. And we think about what hypervigilance is like. To me, that explains a lot of ADD. Just a kid who can't pay attention because they're always on guard for something else. Now, I'm not saying that all ADD cases are caused by sexual abuse. But if 40% of children before the age of 18 have been sexually abused and this kind of hyper-vigilance, always on guard, looking for whatever I'm not looking for, is one of the key attributes of that. I think it's something that we need to be uh, more aware of and screening for in those situations. Uh, another aspect is ambivalence. Feeling two contradictory emotions at the same time. It's kind of what we talked about with Diane and DoubleThink. Again, I can be in love and feel unsafe at the same time. Why? Because I've done that all my life. Because my parents weren't safe. Or my babysitter wasn't safe. Or my teacher or my uncle. And yet, I couldn't go through life just not loving at all. And so I I get in this pattern of holding two contradictory things at the same time. And just kind of as an aside here this is a lot of the kind of thing that's discussed in counseling over sexual abuse. You know, sometimes people think counseling over sexual abuse, you know, you're not going to be able to make the things that happened to me untrue and just going through and talking about my childhood in great detail. That just seems like it's going to cause more damage than it does good. What kind of benefit could, could I get from this? Of being able to go through present tense struggles and, and be able to say that that sounds like the pattern of hypervigilance i don't think that's garden variety anxiety that you feel i don't think you're a pessimist uh, at least not that being the root cause of what's going on that that's hypervigilance i feel like i'm crazy i can just you know i can say this and this at the same time yeah that makes sense that frequently happens Um, And and just to be able to understand those things in the present life situation. And it's not about making the bad things untrue. It's about understanding the effects and seeing how they influence your life so that you can respond to those things not out of the abuse, um, but for what that moment really is. Now another aspect is is flashbacks. And if we use the classic example of post-traumatic stress, The triggers for flashbacks are a little easier to identify. It's sirens and gunshots and loud noises. But if we ask ourselves, what are the triggers with sexual abuse? It can be touch, it can be words you look really nice. Well, please don't notice me. It can be relationships. It can be being alone in a room and again wondering who's going to come through that door next. Um, The kinds of things that can create a traumatic reaction, the kind of trigger uh, with sexual abuse is just much more the day-to-day stuff of life and relationships that that we all want but when it creates this level of unrest we begin to resist and so just a kind of a quick tutorial here on what kinds of things that can be done with flashbacks I think one of the things that can be most helpful is using our five senses to ground us in the moment that we're in Uh, occasionally somebody in my office has begun to to have a flashback and their eyes begin to dart around the room. And you might begin to hear them say, "Like I can smell that musty smell. I can hear the steps coming. I can hear him coming. To- Please stop. And so at that moment, I just ask, Can you hear my voice? Do you hear me? Do you know this is Brad? Yes, yes, I do. Okay, just keep, keep listening. You're here with me. Can you feel the chair you're in? It's cold, it's smooth, isn't it? Yes. Okay, I want you to look at the fish tank. I want you to see the light. I want you to trace one of the fish that's swimming in the water. And I just begin to use various senses to ground them in the present. Uh, one of the senses that is most tied to memory is the olfactory or sense of smell. And so if you have a favorite smell, uh, maybe vanilla or cinnamon or lavender, uh, then in your pocket or in your purse... Uh, you just keep a potpourri sack so that if something begins to unsettle you in that moment, you can just and you can take in that smell just as a way to begin to ground yourself here. If you can get to a mirror and you look in the mirror and you see you now, the age that you are now, adult, as opposed to you kind of going back in that traumatic experiencing from here, feeling like I'm a little child, the more things that you can do to ground yourself in that moment. Uh, Diane Lingberg goes on. She says, trauma by definition is an injury done to personhood. When personhood is shattered, actions become meaningless. A traumatic reaction occurs. The work of therapy must be managed with the needs and resiliency of the individual client in mind. Trauma by definition is unbearable. Again, just making some comments here about counseling a good counselor in this area will work with you at the pace that you're ready to go. Uh, That if there's times when you say, I just, I've had enough. Again, that's why I would say here at our break or if you on video says, I've had all of this seminar that I can take right now. uh, At our break, uh, feel free to depart and you can catch the rest of it on video. If you're on video, push pause and come back to whatever minute marker uh, that you're on at a later point. Because God is gracious. One of the points we'll come back to again is that he restores us at a human pace. At a pace we can bear. Uh, Now in this next slide, the painful liberty of truth. uh, Dan Allender gets a little bit poetic here. But I think it's a point worth making. He says, depression is selfless selfishness. Or perhaps better, selfless revenge. If I could give maybe a different picture, trying to bring that down a little bit. Um, Depression is often a way of barricading ourselves from the world. We just don't want to feel. And so it's a way of cutting ourselves off. And I think that's what he's getting at. We just, we'd rather feel nothing. And that's where he goes with this idea of serene faith. He says, more often than not, such serene faith is a byproduct of wanting very little from God. Honesty is the commitment to see reality as it is, without conscious distortion, minimization, or over-spiritualization. Honesty begins by admitting we are deceived and that we would rather construct a false world than face the bright, searing light of truth. And again, we say that with compassion. Compassion who wouldn't rather just live in a false world than live in one where I had to remember those kinds of things? And I think part of what we, we tend to come back from is God's voice. And I think for many of us, uh, our, our thought coming into this is, please do not let him go to Romans eight twenty eight. Please do not let that be where we go with this presentation and i want to get close to that uh, i'd rather start with verse 25 and see how god walks into uh, romans 8:28 paul starts off he says but if we hope for what we do not see and hope is one of those nice words hope is one of those words that we we think of it as a virtue But when we hope for what we do not see, it may be a nice virtue, but it's a painful experience. And I think Paul sees that. He says we wait with patience. Patience is another nice word that's a painful experience. We don't ever see somebody on the beach drinking out of a coconut going, ah, they are the most patient person in the entire world. We see somebody with like 12 kids running around playing cowboys and Indians and they're not thumping anybody's head. And we go, that person, they're patient. Patience assumes uh, an environment that would wear us down. And that's where Paul goes. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That as we hope and as we're patient, as we're trying to figure out what to do because we don't know what to do, it wears us down. We begin to feel weak. We begin to feel overwhelmed. We say, "God, I don't, I, I don't got this. I can't take it." And as one basketball coach said, "Fatigue makes fools of us all." That's why he would run his pri- players before practice and then make them actually do the drills uh, afterwards, so that they would have to do decision making when when they were fatigued, because that's what it would be like at the end of the game. And that kind of just Mental confusion is, is where Paul goes next. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Again, I'm wasting away, hoping, being patient. I'm getting weak. I don't even know what to say. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. And if you hear that word intercede, I would invite you to look at who, who the Spirit is talking to. Intercession does not mean the Spirit is talking to us. The Spirit's not saying, think this, don't think that, do this. Uh, let me tell you what you ought to do to make this all better. The Spirit is interceding on our behalf. When we don't know what to say, the Spirit is bringing our brokenness to God. It says, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words the spirit's not praying in some kind of neat eloquent theologically astute prayer the spirit is bringing god to bringing us to god just like we are and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of god and what is being brought to god on our behalf that represents us and Complete authenticity is something that is is God's will for where we go from here. What life would be like. And it's on the basis of that that Paul would say. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. It is the outworking of that kind of compassion and knowing. And God praying to Himself for us on our behalf. It is on that certainty, that level of involvement, that level of awareness. And if you say, what does that sound like? I I want to do an exercise here from Psalm 55. And, and I will just, I'll acknowledge up front, this is a, I think this is a very good exercise, but it's a very heavy exercise. And if we ask, what is it like? What? If could we talk to God in the way that it seems that we have the freedom to do, what would it be like for us to be honest with Him? I think Psalm 55 is a good example of that, because the psalms are kind of unique from the rest of Scripture. Most of the rest of Scripture is God talking to us. "Do this, don't do that. Here's what I did. This is who I am. Uh, this is what I'm going to do in the future. Psalms are unique. Psalm is God giving us words to speak back to Him. And I think it's noteworthy that there are more psalms of lament, more psalms of pain, than there are psalms of praise. Because God knew in a broken world we would need words for that. And so what I want to do, if you turn to page 12 in your notebook, is I want us, I want us to walk through Psalm 55 I think in a way that is very faithful to the way that God would want us to use this to be able to pray back to Him in the midst of our experience. And so I'll read a verse or two and then I'll come back and I'll read the personalization for the subject of sexual abuse. Verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not Yourself from my plea for mercy. O God, please hear me. Don't pretend that this did not happen. I need you. Verse 2 and 3. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they doubt trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. Be silent no longer, God. Say something. Let me know that you are there. I am overwhelmed as I cry and convulse over what's happened to me. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't think. My abuser made such awful noises. He took pleasure in my pain and degradation. He overpowered me. There was nothing I could do. He must hate me to keep doing this. What have I done? What could cause such hatred and disregard? Verse 4, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. My soul quakes. Heartbreak feels romantic compared to this. This is worse than death. Verse 5, fear and trembling comes upon me and horror overwhelms me. Panic attacks and the fear of panic attacks assail me. My body tremors in rebellion against me. I can't control my own movements. Fear divides my heart, my soul, my mind, my body and will and attacks each of them separately. Verses 6 and 7. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Like Jenny and Forrest Gump, I want to be a bird so I could fly, fly far, far away. I want to escape to a place of rest. That place of rest would have to be far away. But there is one, right? I would travel however far, but whatever means, if only you promised there is somewhere I can go. Verse 8, I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. If you would just tell me the direction, I would leave now. I would drive all night. I want peace more than I want sleep. Without peace, sleep is useless. Sleep is just a part of the storm with its nightmares and waking up realizing that I've got to fake it through another day. Verse 9. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongue. For I see violence and strife in the city. Take justice. Do to them what they have done to my soul. Don't let them multiply my shame by talking about this deed. Don't let them mock me or worse, talk like nothing happened. Verses 10 and 11. Day and night they go around on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. I can't believe I live in a world, a country, where this is common. It's always being reported on the news or another documentary. Every time I hear it, I am reminded. The pain echoes. Or worse yet, it flashes back. There's a whole industry of sexual degradation in our culture. Pornography. Bigger than the NFL. They write and glorify stories like mine. There's an audience who pays for this. Even with children. Verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But I can't blame culture an industry for my pain it is no stranger who dined on my soul it was not an enemy if if it wasn't it was not an enemy who was getting even if it were then I could be more protected I could appeal to family and friends for help and they might even believe me verse 13 but it is you A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. But I knew them. I trusted him. My trust was used against me. My trust was the Trojan horse that let him in. How was I supposed to know? Verse 14. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. We had so many good talks before that. We went to church together. We prayed together. He taught me Bible lessons. How much of that was a lie? What does it mean to have your soul betrayed by a friend and a friend of God? Let death steal over them, verse 15. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. May the death that they sparked in me explode in their own life and them live to experience it. Oh, that they would know the full degree of pain it was possible for them to create. Let their heart vomit its content in their own soul. Verse 16, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. But I call to you, God. No one is capable of handling this except you. It would take omnipotence to overpower my pain. It would take omnipresence to get your arms around it. And it would take omniscience to fathom what I'm going through. Only you can help me. Evening and morning, for 17, and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And God hears my voice. My pain is before me all day and at night when I'm not sleeping. I don't know what else to do but cry out to you. So you hear from me a lot. Everything in my life reminds me of my pain. And my pain reminds me of my need for you constantly. Verse 18. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. God, you are the one who keeps soldiers safe in the midst of battles. And I'm in the fight of my life. And I won't make it without you. My abusers, my pain, memories, and fears, they outnumber me greatly. Verse 19. God will give ear and humble them He who is enthroned from of old because they do not change and do not fear God. God, I trust the lies and deception do not outlive you. You hear, you see, you know the truth. This sin was as arrogant against you as it was ravaging to me. My abuser will not stand or smirk in your presence. Verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. My father, uncle, friend, babysitter, teacher attacked me and violated the trust of our friendship. And with it, my willingness to allow anyone to get, clo- to get close again. Verse 21. His speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were like drawn swords. I replay his words over and over again. But cannot figure out what I should have heard. The terror of his intentions were hidden to so many. Were all all of his compliments intentional instruments of death? Or were some of them sincere? Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. This was not my fault. God calls me righteous as His child. He asked me to cry out to Him. He is not ashamed of me. God is angered by anyone who would shun Or condemn me for what happened to me. Verse 23. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. But God is more angered by my rapist. Sexual predators will answer for their sin. Yet in his fury against them, God is still safe for me. I will come near. I will leave my shame. I will look in your eyes, oh God, and have my trust restored. Yet, um, I think it's on the basis of that, that that we can hear what Diane is alluding to when she's, we can hear what Diane's alluding to when she says, the act of having another person, in this case Christ, enter into our suffering with us is an incredible gift with profound results. And when we, when we brace against this notion of what would God say if God could speak? What would, what would He say to me? I think Psalm 55 there's another exercise here from Isaiah 53. When we, when we have the suffering servant, and there's one person who, who read through the Gospels, who would abuse, and they took his clothes too. Just that sense in which he was tempted and suffered in every way as we were. That he doesn't come to us aloofly from a distance. He brings his words of healing and compassion as one who knows very deeply Uh, The kind of peace that we're looking for. And it's not empty words when he says a peace I give to you is different from anything that the world can give.